Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 25. I'm Mike Updegraff. And I'm Joshua Klein. 25 is a big number. Mm-hmm. It's a quarter century mark. Qu- quarter century. It's pretty good. <laughs> Not too bad for making... It's taken us 25 years to get 25 Series episodes. of audio recordings. <laughs> so what's going on? Well big news the biggest news yeah issue 10 out the door issue 10 is hitting mailboxes um if you haven't uh gotten it yet you will soon uh we've been getting emails from people uh the shipment notification went out everybody's getting them in their mailboxes and so yeah uh you should be seeing it anytime uh we are we wrote some blog posts um about some aspects of it and i've really so we upgraded paper this time. Yeah, it's too really nice. Yeah, to an absurdly quality <laughs> paper. It's so awesome. I yeah. can't even. I'm just over the moon. Um, so uh, appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> take yeah. a look at the take images. Each, it's each just page like, oh. and just like caress it. Yeah. So the thing with uncoated paper is because there's no coating on the paper when you put ink on it, the ink saturates in and it kind of has this tiny little bleed and so it makes a softer image so it's hard to get a crisp picture which is not good or bad it's just a different effect so we like uncoated paper but um but you're also trying to like get crispness as well right and so the finer the paper is the finer it's ground or whatever um uh then the the less bleed happens. And so with this new paper, this is like super, super high-end premium stuff. And so it's super fine. And so it's exactly like this nice uncoated stock, but the images are almost like it's on coated stock, just super crisp. It's yeah. like the best of both worlds. All the details We're captured. So, so it's good stuff. Sorry, <clears throat> sorry, nerdy print stuff. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, the images are, uh, it just makes the images really pop. The color is vivid. Uh, this issue is super exciting to yeah. us. And if you listen to our podcast talking about 10, you'll know we're excited about this issue. We are. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> You but, came in with a big box today. Yeah, I had a big box on my shoulder on my commute. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I'm green, I walk to work. <laughs> he has a, a Roy Underhill-style commute where he's like, you know, hopping over the stream and petting the dog and... I, I think yeah, you have an axe on your shoulder, right? There's music <laughs> playing in the background. Pretty much, yeah. So I come over the stream, our little bridge we made. I come over the stream and I had a big box on my shoulder. And uh, we are, we're carrying a new book in our store, a book that you have heard me go on about, uh, Albert Borgman's Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life. Um, it's not an easy read, right? We're not lying. We're not going to say, oh, yeah, everyone should just you know, stick this next to the toilet and, you know, mm-hmm. knock out another chapter each time you're in there. It's not that kind of read. It's serious reading. But to me, it is just so good and so important. So we're uh, carrying it in our store. Uh, we have the book available now and we're shipping it out. So uh, make sure to get a copy of that book and dig deep. If you're really into thinking deep about craft and uh, how technology relates to your life, wanting to work with your hands or, you know, how to live an engaged life, um, interacting with the world, I could not recommend another book more highly. This is the book to read. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a great one. And uh, <clears throat> another, some other stuff going on. Uh, the MT Grant Program, 
uh, our deadline for um, uh, grant uh, recipient um, applications is June 1st, right? Mm -hmm. June 1st. So we've seen uh, a few rolling in. We've heard from quite a few people who are asking, oh, do I, do I qualify? Do you think uh, this sounds like it would be something up your alley? And we have been very excited to hear yeah. some of the things um, suggested. Uh, We're really looking forward to uh, getting out the applications and laying them out and working through them and, and selecting our uh, recipients for this year. Yeah. Uh, so if you I do not know who it's going to be we I, don't we've been sorting through some of the ideas that we've had put before us and we're like wow yeah that's like a shoe in that's yeah perfect and then there's this other one that's yeah awesome really so, great um <clears throat> yeah we're excited about this, this program yeah so if you haven't heard of the M&T grant program you should check it out on our website as you get on there's a um link at the very top of the page to click and you can learn more about that uh, whether you are someone who might be interested in applying for a grant or someone who might want to support that program mm -hmm. uh, that's the place to go and see what it's all about yeah and basically it's just we had people emailing us asking for advice about how do i get onto my research i want to do i'm really fascinated yeah and at the same time we got a bunch of emails from people super generous people that just said how can we support your work how can we how can i you know contribute somehow financially and we're not asking for that we don't but we said okay we're seeing people say i want to help people do research and people saying how do i get help doing research right we're like oh that's <laughs> and so the grant program is just trying to connect those people um so if if you're one of those people <laughs> Uh, the grant program may be a, a good uh, path for you. I received, I've received two research grants uh, in the past from the Early American Industries Association and the Society of American Period Furniture Makers. And they were both so helpful to me. Yeah. So we wanted to be able to throw another grant program out there and get people's research uh, underway. So, yeah, it's, it's good. It's, yeah. It's going to be awesome. It is. Um, and then uh, we today wanted to talk about this this new project we're in the midst of and we'll be launching soon, uh, as in tomorrow, mm -hmm. we'll be opening, uh, ordering. Um, we are doing box sets for issues 1 through 10. And uh, I wrote a little... Very limited number of them. <laughs> Very... <laughs> we keep going, how limited is this run going to be? Cause... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, we wanted we've wanted to do a one through ten box set for a long time, but you know we were doing research on some sort of cardboard box or some custom wooden like a box, slip sleeve, or slip whatever. sleeve. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> what would it be? And uh, we just kept going in circles, and it kept coming back to. I think we need to make yeah, some handmade dovetail boxes for these <clears throat> things. It's just just you know that's like a crazy idea, but. We wanted to try to really have the box be the embodiment of the M&T vision of handwork and four plane marks and yeah. cut nails. Tool marks and, and layout lines. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't just mass produce that and, and buy that from someone else. And so uh, we said this is going to be a big project we're super excited about. And so we are doing small batches of box sets of wrapped one through ten with trade cards and wax seals uh nine and ten never had trade cards and wax seals right but they will for this box they set. will have uh custom special trade cards yep. for each issue 
and uh, it's a white pine wooden box dovetails rabbits a sliding back in a, a, a groove and it's all basically trying to embody pre-industrial cabinet making work and all mm -hmm. the different joinery in one box um, and we have our our mnt pyramid logo branded into the side of the uh, yeah. box on both sides so it's a big a big project it is <laughs> um <clears throat> and so it's definitely very limited in number um and so tomorrow which is thursday the 18th of march this is um, 2021 2021 <laughs> i don't know what year you're listening yeah. to this podcast right <clears throat> but so tomorrow the 18th we will be First, on our mailing list, our, our email newsletter, we'll be releasing the ordering information. So those folks have first dibs. And then uh, later on in the day, we'll be putting a blog post up talking about how to get your order in for this. We also will be disclosing the final price. So um, obviously, it's not some bargain right. cheapo product. This is a serious um, luxury kind of product. So um, we'll release that information, limited numbers. Uh, but it really, truly is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. We only set aside a certain number of um, issues of one and two to be able to do right. this. Just and for the box We're just we're clearing those out. So we cannot do this in the future. Right. So, um, yeah, so watch for those emails, or the email or the blog post. Um, but what we want to do today with this podcast episode is talk about batch production because we're deep into batch production right now. And we don't typically do a lot of batch production in, in our work. We're trying to um, look at a particular form of furniture or, or something, and we're experimenting with recreating that one given item. Yeah. But we don't typically say, now I want to make 20 or 100 of these or right. 500 of these, right? So, But obviously, historically, it wasn't that there was one person making one thing all the time. Sometimes, probably. Right. But batch production has been around for a really long time, um, well before the Industrial Revolution. So um, there's a lot to learn about pre-industrial work in doing sm small-scale batch production, and that has proved to be quite true. We yeah. have learned a ton in this process. We have. So we wanted to talk <clears throat> about some of that. Yeah, so... Um the the first step um and joshua you took this on i forget where i was i was away and you were working on the box you're on vacation or something something yeah i just <laughs> dilly dally all day long um so you made a prototype right and that is an important first step in yeah. batch production uh work out the the kinks of the mm -hmm. uh the design and you kind of you came up with a um like laid out steps for putting this box together yeah i said if we're going to do a whole bunch of these i'll make the prototype time it get it all figured out and then say okay so what we'll do is we'll first get all the sides cut and we'll do this and step two is i had the whole process laid out right yeah so. and i mean it's it's funny um and we'll talk more about this in a little bit but just trying to extrapolate the time for making one box extrapolating that out to making say 15 boxes uh there is not a direct correlation because batch production is is really super efficient when you sure. get to it. Um, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, so you build a box, and then we decided that uh, the two of us together were going to build another box. Like each of us <clears throat> were going to build a box. Yeah, basically. To work through that process. Yeah, so troubleshoot the process. 
Yeah. So the first prototype was saying, I want to make one and see if this final product is good, if we're happy with this. Mm -hmm. And then we said, okay, now I have all these steps written down and planned out. Yeah. Now we have to test that process. Right. Does that process make sense? Um, so we each built one. We Yep, we each built side. one. We made a few subtle changes. Yeah, like uh, I made a mistake. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of the... It's it's And then we, we changed like... Uh, instead of doing um, the rabbits all the way through, they're now stopped. And um, we changed, didn't we change something about the... Well, the dimension, because I cut uh, it's the top and bottom boards and I cut them the wrong size. I made it uh, like an eighth of an inch or a quarter of an inch smaller. And we actually decided... We oh, actually you know we like that. They actually yeah. fit nicer. They still slide in. Yeah. So all that subtle stuff is how you, if you're going to make a whole bunch of something... You want to work all that stuff out right right away you don't yeah. want to get into number 40 and go you know what these are kind of loose yeah yeah and <laughs> another know? thing about this kind of uh process if you're making a box to hold something it's really good to not do it by measurement but actually try putting the thing in the yeah, box because sure. yeah. you know how it goes you get done you like you build a cabinet and you're ready to roll it in place put it in place and you put it up and it doesn't fit you should always test fit you know, if you're making a box to hold 10 issues of a magazine, slide those 10 issues in. Make sure it fits. Don't with, just go. With wax seals. Oh, it's, exactly. Because, you know, there are <laughs> confounding factors like the addition of some brown paper and wax seals might make a difference. Uh, so don't just go by measurement uh, yeah. because measure, numbers can screw you up. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that's actually a good point because so numbers can screw you up. Yeah. So the whole thing about prototyping is nailing down all those details so you don't have to think about deciding oh should it be this much or that much or how do i do this or oh yeah how does this connect to that right you don't want to ask that question when you're in production mode so what we did is we got all of our settings all of our, we have templates for the, the spacing of the dovetails because we're selling a bunch of, or <laughs> a small bunch of right. these and we want them all to look consistent so the dovetails should at least be spaced consistently Although we don't have the angles of the dovetails, we always We're cut, just eyeballing. We, we cut those angles by <clears throat> eye. But we have these uh, little templates and, and layout sticks, story sticks, to be able to say, okay, here is the um, the dovetail spacing, and on that very thing, we have the the dovetail uh, baseline measurement for the marking gauge, and we have all this information embedded in these things, so that we don't ever have to. You know, say, okay, so it's a half inch rabbit. Okay, go grab yeah. the, you know, rule and Whereas, lay it down yeah. and try to mark. Forget that. Half inch, because every piece will be different yeah. if you do it that way. Every piece will have uh, a slight difference to it, and um, they won't be as consistent as you'd like. So, uh, for example, when we're uh, batch cutting the sides and the tops and bottoms, uh, we are using a. Uh, what year was that? 1906 something? something Miller's like Falls, uh, uh, miter box, the big mm -hmm. big uh, miter saw, uh, which works great. I mean, mm -hmm. that thing's uh, fun to use. Uh, if you're comparing it to like a worksite chop saw, I would say takes a little longer, much <laughs> quieter, yeah, <laughs> uh, much more. It's just nice to use. So we just rig up a stop 
on there's one no end. There's no kickback either. There's no kickback. No. <laughs> Which no. always makes your heart leap out of your yeah. throat when that happens. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Saw. When when the <laughs> the board starts dropping at one end and it. Have you had that happen before? Oh yeah. When I chop so yeah. yeah. I was working on a job site one time, a carpentry site, and had that kickback, and the little tiny offcut went flying and hit the wall of the place. (laughs) So I was like, okay. I I had one, uh, we were working, (laughs) trying to get a bunch of stuff done, and it was starting to rain, and, uh, you know, power tools and rain, and I go to squeeze the trigger, and I'm like, whoa, ow, jeez. I got bitten by it, a little bit of uh, voltage through the hand. (laughs) So you don't have that trouble with a 1906 <laughs> Miller's Falls miter saw. No, just don't use that in the rain. No. For other reasons. Yeah. But, um, but we just rig up a little stop, and then can we can batch cut all the pieces at the exact same length. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, measuring each one, you would have differences because you stretch out the tape, you put a tick mark, you put your square on, you scribe. It's going to be different. Yep. Um, yeah, so when you have a stop, you just slide it up. Make yep. the cut, slide it again, make the cut. Yep. Um, that's the, the beauty of the workmanship of certainty. Yes, you know? it, is a, it is a certain thing. And um, the, the funny thing about that, though, is that even within uh, that certainty, there is there's room for improvement. Like I found myself learning how to use the saw more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain subtle tricks you can do to just make the cut go more quickly or make it cut a little cleaner, um, make sure it doesn't bind, like if you're at the end of a long board yeah. and it's trying to bow. Yeah. Uh, there, There's all kinds of interaction that you can still do with the material, uh, especially when you're powering the tool by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't find that to be a boring process. I, I imagine if I was doing that all day, every day, it would get that way. Sure. Um, but the nice thing about batch production in the way that we're doing it is we're doing every step. Yeah. We're just doing doing it multiple times. Right. So if you're locked into a, more of an assembly line type of mentality where you're just doing the same step mm-hmm. and you can't see the beginning of the assembly line and you can't see the end of it, um, that is where it starts to eat at your soul, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, I worked on an assembly line building fire trucks. and uh, Which well, is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> but you know what I did? I put doors in. Just all day long, all day. every day. There were three kinds of doors. Uh-huh. So that was good. Mm. And there was one kind of door that was Variety. less yeah. common. So when that would come through, you'd be oh, like, oh, wow. Yeah. Great, you know. But you'd put them in the exact same way every yeah. time. Except that one was a little bit different. So that mm. was kind of fun. But yeah, I mean, so the assembly line thing is, um, I, I don't know. It gets old. Mm-hmm. After, you know, a 40-hour work week, you're like, well... I think I've had enough of doors. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but before that, I was putting handrails on. Oh, wow. A door <laughs> is a step up, I would say. So that was good. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, we had uh, this whole process kind of worked out, all of our templates and things. The other piece of it that we found is... Um, so we have a rabbit that's a certain dimension and the dovetail baseline, um, which actually happens to be the exact same amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have the rabbit obviously has two dimensions. It's half inch w- uh, wide and mm-hmm. it, uh, what is it, an eighth of an eighth inch, inch deep. deep. Yeah. And so it doesn't make sense, of course, to have one marking gauge that you keep changing the setting. Right. What you'd rather do, what you should do, is you should have 
two marking gauges that never change settings. Yeah, just fix them, set it, and forget it, basically. <laughs> set it and forget Is that Ronco? Yeah. yeah. Oh, the Ronco rotisserie. So set it and forget it. Yeah. And so um, you have all these gauges that are set for specific things. Um, and then you 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 it's that much more uh, guarantee of consistency. Right. And ease. You're never measuring. You're never checking. You're never... You're just cruising through. You're grabbing that one-eighth gauge and yep. running it. And um, something that's valuable to do, and um, Joshua, I, I picked this up from you, and I had never done this before, but like when we were working on this building and uh, we established like the, the bevel angle at the top of the sheathing, you would take that angle, the bevel gauge, and you'd go like to the workbench and you'd scribe that angle in. Mm -hmm. So you can always set your bevel gauge back to that fixed angle. Um, with the marking gauges, you took the gauge and you scribed it in the side of the dovetail gauge and you, you drew an arrow and said that this is the dovetail baseline. So you, yep. instead of measuring with your marking gauge, if for whatever reason you have to use it for something else, you just come and set the pin in that groove and that's the measurement. Which is why you want physical yes. baselines. You're not yep. trying to use pencil lines. You have a physical scribed line. Right. So you can actually do that. So in a yeah. hundred years, you could come back to that template, yeah. drop a pin and mark and set the fence yeah. to it. And it's you have a, the exact same mark. setting that, that we yeah. were using. So yeah, that is, it is really useful. So um, I guess uh, a practical tip would be to pick up a couple more marking gauges because yeah. they're, they're like clamps, right? You can't, I guess you could have too many, but you know, a couple. Maybe two, like three, more than five is kind of crazy. That's probably too many. <laughs> Two or three, you will find use yeah. for them in well, this kind of project. And they're inexpensive, or better yet, just make a few. Yeah, you know, it's super it's easy, especially if you're making a fixed one. You can make those all day long. That's that's another thing we I've done. We actually have one of those for a stopped groove in the top board. We have um, a small fixed gauge, which, which is kind of like a scratch stock with two nails coming through. Um, and so... There, the fence is fixed. It's one block of wood right. with two nails that define the um, the boundaries of the groove. So you can't adjust the fence. Right. It just is set. Yeah. And that's really helpful because then you can't even bump can't the setting. You can accidentally mess it up. I mean, <laughs> I guess you can accidentally mess up pretty much anything. I mean, we're if you try we're, hard enough. We're pretty good at it. We that. are. <laughs> yeah. You got to want it, though. Yeah. You got to put some effort into it. Um, so. Some other things that, um, and p just picking this up from period furniture, right? The insides of drawers always have funny little marks in them. And you look at those and you go, what is that squiggle? What is that semicircle back there in the back corner? And oh, look at this. It's in every single drawer. There's a little semicircle in the back corner mm -hmm. inside or, or whatever. Um, so you have taken that system and, and kind of run with it in terms of marking when you're making multiples of of uh, an object, a drawer, or something like that, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, so you have, say, like the sides. Um, we have all these sideboards 12 inches long, and they're all in a big stack, a big pile. And we got some tear-out. Well, I mean, we have tear-out pretty much everywhere, a little bit. Yeah. But some places, there'll be a knot, and so there's some of the knot missing, or a lot of tear out so you turn that to the inside of the box um and so you know as mike was cutting these batch cutting these um 
these sides, I was sorting through them and, and designating outside face, inside face, and top and bottom. And so what that does then is what I did is the um, the inside on the inside to the rear on the bottom, I made a, a quarter circle at the at the corner as if you're designating like a 90 degree yeah. uh, angle there. So it's a quarter circle and that marks the inside rear bottom corner. Yeah. And then I could, I made it, I had a second board that mirrored it and stacked them together. So now I, I can pick up that board and in half a second know and be oriented to everywhere where that board is situated. So yeah. I know where the groove goes. <clears throat> I know where the rabbit goes. I know where the dovetail goes by looking at that one quick line. Yeah, because if you don't have a mark like that, it's really easy to mess something up and put the groove on the outside or, or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and the other thing we've talked about with just the way that uh, pre-industrial furniture is made is the fact that you always have, you know, a show surface and a secondary surface, and you can usually tell by feel what the difference yep. is. Uh, the secondary surface is rougher, and that's just a practical outworking of efficient woodworking mm -hmm. where you're leaving the underside coarse and then there's never any mistake you know you won't accidentally flip a board or use the the drawer side backwards try and put it together wrong because it's obvious which is which mm -hmm. um so those marks also really help with that process yeah definitely um <clears throat> so some of the benefits as i was i mentioned earlier just how much faster it goes together and we were kind of shocked yesterday at one point when we started tallying our hours to get to the point that we're at now which is a decent way through this mm -hmm. first batch and uh you know we were cutting cutting tails yesterday and uh going how much longer could this take because we had crunched a certain number for the boxes a certain amount of time and we're like uh oh this is it's a like lot less. less than half that yeah. like uh, that it's going to end up being possibly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's just the benefit of like making 40 rabbits, right? All Like all together, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. by rabbit number 40. It was pretty quick. Yeah, you, you kept timing yourself to see how you were improving. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, when, when you are cutting a whole bunch of sets of dovetails, you know, we, we've talked about... Um, or mentioned at times in the past, like the dovetail a day kind of challenge mm -hmm. where you just go and you try and cut a set of dovetails a day and you do it for a month. And by day 30, uh, you're a lot better at cutting dovetails. So in terms of batch production, it's the same thing, but it's all at once. You're yep. cutting all of this stuff and you get really quite adept at it by the time you're done. You learn uh, the most efficient way. Like we started out with the rabbit and I cut my first one and I was using the saw. Um, and I was like, oh, I don't think the saw is the way to go, especially since it's a stopped rabbit in this design. Because mm -hmm. basically you can only do so much with the saw. And so we're just, you know, scribing it with the knife deeply and then paring it out with the chisel. And yeah, in white pine, yeah. an eighth of an inch depth on a rabbit in white pine. Yeah. It's two strokes with the knife yeah. or two uh increments of yeah. scribing that wall and you get a nice clean line with yeah. a knife where a, a saw might be a little fuzzy but i think the other thing about the the production 
side of it or the, the efficiency of production is um, you, you learn more efficient ways to do it uh, or you learn better ways to do it. So yesterday I did 40 rabbits or whatever I did, 36 rabbits or something. Right. Um, and I really got in the swing of it. So um, it's because what happens is your, your inefficiencies get multiplied. And so say if I was making one of these boxes or the first one I made, let's say each rabbit took me on average 10 minutes. Right. I don't know if that's what it took, but you know, I was kind of bumbling through and there's the inefficiency of the first one kind yeah. of bumbling through it. You all kind of, you got to get warmed up and get in the groove of what you're doing and you do the first one and you do the second one and they average to 10 minutes a rabbit. That, that's kind of a long time. Right. But what happens is uh, if you, if that's it, the project's done for rabbits, those rabbits take you 10 minutes a piece. But if you keep going, then you can get it down to, like right now I'm cutting them just over four minutes a piece. So now think about what that means. So for, for this number of rabbits I'm doing, that's 10 extra hours of work. Yeah. By taking the rabbit from 10 minutes per rabbit to four minutes per rabbit. Yeah. 10 hours of work. So those inefficiencies get multiplied really quick. Uh, so it's what's great about doing a, a run of rabbits is that you can say, okay, how can I shave off 30 seconds by, oh, I know, if I skip this step and then just do that over here, that shaves 30 seconds off. And you, and it's not just like how, you know, about bottom line or something, but it's understanding the process better and saying, how can I do this simpler yeah. and smarter? Why am I doing it in this backwards, <clears throat> weird way? Right. It's not a problem if you only have two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But all of a sudden you learn so much more when you're forced to say, I better look close at this. Yeah. Because <laughs> it might mean 10 hours of work if yeah. I'm not careful. It, those, yeah, it adds up tremendously fast. Um, <clears throat> so we're talking about uh, Jared Dahl's article in issue four. Uh, it's called The Quest for Mastery Through Production Work. And uh, Jared gives this example where he was uh, commissioned to hand ads with a Japanese ads, uh, a whole bunch of fence pickets, right? He had 750 fence pickets to ads by hand to get that really cool, uh, like scallop or scalloped as we say in Maine, mm -hmm. uh, the scalloped te texture uh, to the pickets. And so uh, he says this, Although I'd ads timbers before and was no stranger to the technique, I had never used a Japanese chona ads to that extent. On the first day when I saw three giant stacks of material waiting for me, I got a sinking feeling, knowing it was going to be backbreaking work. But I had faced those feelings and thoughts of doubt before and knew that once I got to work, they'd begin to fade. Within a few hours, I could hardly stand back up after each pass with the ads. One of my fingers had a painful blister. Yet, one by one, as the days went on, the pile of finished pieces was growing. After a hundred, I felt more at ease with the task. The bodily pains didn't completely disappear, but with loud punk rock music, ibuprofen, and a positive attitude, they became tolerable. And then he talks about how his focus was able to change, right? Like, after a hundred, you think, wow, uh, adding a hundred, like... I don't know, these look like six foot tall pickets or something. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of work, but he was n not, I mean, he was like an eighth of the way through, right, at that point. Mm. Um, and that's a lot of work, but by the end, he had found 
he got into the, the flow of the process. He got really efficient at it. And he had developed a dexterity with the tool that he really could not have come up with any other way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you think about a, a picket a day. <laughs> yeah, one yeah. a day. <laughs> you wouldn't, you would not learn what Jared learned. No. Um, Just sure. diving in uh, for hours and hours. But there are so many things that that ease that process. That right. When you're doing that work, you know, for Jared, it's, ibuprofen and ibu- punk rock music. <laughs> ibuprofen and punk rock. Um, but so he had music blaring in his ears. Uh, to just so it's interesting because you could say, well, that's kind of maybe distracting, taking his mind away from the work he's saying is painful. Hmm. Um, but I'm not. I'm not so sure that's the only benefit to it. Maybe in that case it was. But also, there's this whole focusing effect that happens. Yeah. So, like, um, uh, Mike and I have been talking while we're working. We're working at the same 12-foot-long bench. And, you know, so side-by-side, just uh, working on our tasks. And we've been chatting about projects we have in the future we want to do and, you know, whatever, articles coming up. And we're just chatting. And some of those conversations were... um, some of them, I would say, we got distracted by our work slowed down. Yes, because we got totally. excited about the project and we yeah. started talking and yeah. we put our tool down. And we're like, okay, we've been inefficient conversations. Inefficient. <laughs> but there are some conversations that are so um, I don't know if I could say surface level, but they don't demand a lot of. It's not brainstorming. It's just kind right. of chatting, and that that chat level of discussion just. It's like this background music almost mm-hmm. that it, you can just focus on the task you're doing and your your mouth is going and your brain is just receiving this information and you're just kind of flowing along. Yeah. We found in those kinds of conversations, the work really sped up. Yeah, We were able to be laser focused. On, our hands were focused. We were just going and we were talking the whole time. Yep. And then um, for a little while, uh, we were listening to an audio book. Mm-hmm. which is another especially like there are some audiobooks where the the content is this really deep reflective subject that you have to put some mind power to and i would say that's not a problem if you're doing something a task that's really kind of rote and mechanical it can distract you a little if it's more like something you need to focus on and and make sure you're doing it right um, but that again is a good way. If if you don't have anybody to talk to, mm-hmm. especially, an audiobook can be a good kind of almost like adding in that background conversation and getting your mind, um, it, keeping your mind active. Mm-hmm. You know, because we can humans can do pretty awesome things. Like you can be working almost unconsciously, like in almost an alpha state, right, with your hands. And then engaging in a conversation over here with someone else. And I think those kind of practices are really good for, for, for exercising the brain. Totally. You know, you're making new connections, your synapses are all firing and you're, yeah. you're getting a good brain workout. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a good benefit. But so I think it's interesting because here we are working with uh, 19th century tools in a, you know, very uh, pre-industrial shop making these dovetail boxes and blaring uh, an audiobook yeah uh, through 
uh, Bluetooth connected <laughs> speakers so yeah. that it could help our work and facilitate this pre-industrial work to right. happen better. Right. Yeah. So I've been thinking about that, how, you know, I think some would say, well, that's really ironic, you know, yes. that you're blaring this, this audiobook in this. But I, I've been thinking about that because historically there has always been banter mm-hmm. <laughs> and singing yep. in work settings, whether it's in a workshop or on a ship out at sea or in uh, the fields, you know, yep. um, cutting working, wood in the forest, cutting wood in the forest. There was always banter and singing that carried the work along. So I don't think it's actually that different. Mm. Um, and I, I think that um, before I thought, you know, well, maybe the, the reason that the loggers were singing while they were working is because they were trying to take their mind off the job, like Jared's punk rock music. Right. But I'm not so sure that's the only thing. I really do think it that singing and... and uh, chatting kind of discussion and hearing other people sing has this focusing sort of effect that is just so so helpful yeah um so uh i remember we had um it's sort of like i guess at a a job site you know when if you've worked on a job site or in a, a shop where they have the radio blaring it's it's there is this sort of like people can kind of just go inward and they think and they're paying attention to it and they're just busy their hands are busy and they're enjoying it and all of a sudden when the song gets to the chorus like two or three guys just belt it out you know yeah. like whitney houston just at the top of their lungs <laughs> Was that and a- so you know they're all, they're all listening they're all focused their minds are following the song and then they get and to, they can't hold back and i yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's a was beautiful that, thing was that at the boat shop oh yeah yeah <laughs> wow, Whitney Houston. Okay. No, we I don't think we ever listened to Whitney Houston at the boat shop. But things like that, you know, it's it's just another level of um of focus and yeah. keeping your brain active in the process. But it's like in um in issue 5, uh Megan Fitzpatrick wrote an article um about woodworking in classical literature. And she was talking about Adam Bede and uh uh, working in the shop and Adam singing this song. Yeah. And there's this, I mean, if you have issue five, you should open it up and take a look at it, read it. It's really fascinating. You know, he's working away at the bench and he's singing a song and he's then like it, belting it out, belting it out. And then they, they have the song. Yeah. And then he goes, he talks to someone or he gets distracted and then goes right back to his work. Or I think he stops cause he had to, he had to focus on his work or right. whatever. Yeah. And then he goes back and into his song. Picked it right up again. And there's just some, there's something about that, that it's not just a new thing. The job site radio idea is not new. It's right. very ancient. Yeah. I remember reading about um, first century agricultural practices and singing psalms throughout the fields. Wow. This is just very human. Yeah, it <laughs> so. is. And, you know, a couple of years ago when we did those those few um, work song workshops with um, Bennett Konezny. Yeah. In, in Blue Hill, this just this awesome series of events where uh, he came and, and they led uh, work songs as we went out to Four Seasons Farm and picked rocks out of the field and mm-hmm. did a bunch of weeding. And we went and rode a, a Bantry Bay gig out Blue Hill Harbor and singing rowing songs. And by the time we were coming back, we were all getting pretty well in sync. You know, mm-hmm. the song... Um, it, when you have you know a dozen rowers or whatever 
you need something to keep your time because you can't see the person behind you. If you're not careful, you're going to get stabbed in the back by the end of their oar, you know, the handle. <laughs> and that happened a few times on the way out because we weren't in sync. We, we were feeling awkward. It was a new thing to learn. But then we'd start singing a song and that would, we'd all get the beat. We'd all get the rhythm. We learned how to use the oar. And by the time we were coming back in, we were moving pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so the song in that instance was really practical yeah. as well as making it a lot more fun. It's carrying the rhythm of the work. Yeah. And the work doesn't seem as hard yeah. when you're singing a song. And so when we were picking rocks at the farm, um, this is a workshop we signed up for. Yeah. Mike and I paid yeah. money to go <laughs> pick someone else's rocks out of their field. Yeah. And it was so awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. So we were all uh, on our knees picking rocks out of the field and um, Bennett was singing songs, and a lot of them were call and response. But it's great because, especially when you have a few experienced people or people who know the song, um, a lot of these work songs were that people were making up verses on the spot. Yeah. So it's this super fun interactive thing too. You're just picking rocks, and then all of a sudden, the song kind of stops. There's yep. silence, and then and someone starts making up a verse. Calls out a new verse, and then everybody <laughs> responds to it. And, we, and then they get to the line where they're supposed to rhyme, and they kind of <laughs> what does that rhyme? And then with? everybody laughs, and it's just it's so fun. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think even so, there are different ways you can you know bring that enjoyment into the work, um, and that focusing power, and then even just an audiobook or a podcast or you know some whatever can help you focus and just keep you working yeah um, obviously like adam bead there are moments you gotta just turn that thing off and say wait what am i doing here yeah. you gotta make a plan and then you can turn it back on to continue yeah but i don't know if you're like me joshua sometimes if i'm driving and i'm listening to the radio i'll get into a town or a place i don't know and like i know i'm looking for a parking spot i have to turn the radio off yeah sure because yeah. like i can't i can't think yeah Totally. Uh, it's a funny, funny thing. Um, but yeah, uh, you should all look up uh, Bennett's, Bennett's stuff. He has a YouTube channel and he also has worksongs.org, O-R-G. Yeah, worksongs.org. And then you'll see how to spell his last name. Yes. <laughs> and then you can get in YouTube and type in his name, Bennett Konezny. And you should watch some of his YouTube videos. They are so, They're so fun. They're really catchy. Yeah. Um, so... We should talk a little bit about um, what John Ruskin thought of the idea of like division of labor, sure. right? Which is like the assembly line mentality that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And also um, what David Pye thought about Ruskin. Because mm -hmm. the two of them, uh, you know, I think that if they had lived at the same time, they would have like arm wrestled, right? Or, or like... <laughs> put on some boxing gloves or something they they overlapped in a lot of ways but um pi had some strong feelings about some things that ruskin yep. said and stated and believed um so and and we are both influenced <clears throat> deeply by, by both, both of them by both of them yeah uh per, primarily for the overlap that they have yeah but. yeah because together they form really a solid um solid argument but uh, so Ruskin obviously uh, used 
some really strong language in condemning the practice, the dehumanizing and enslaving practice of mm -hmm. forcing someone to create a perfect design, executing someone else's design in an assembly line type situation. Yep. Uh, he said you must unhumanize them. Yeah, turning them into a machine, right? If you expect perfection, if you expect their fingers to be like cog wheels, then you have to you have to take away their humanity. Yeah. Uh, so he made some very vivid and stark statements like that. And, and he, the other thing that um, he said was uh, medieval uh, carving, for instance, of these gargoyles, this, it was, um, it was a sign of a, a free person. These, these uh, statue carvers were not slaves commanded to make flutes on Roman columns. Right. They were said, carve whatever you want yeah and so what he said is what happened is these gargoyles are quite some some of them are rough some of them are crazy and weird but what's great about it is that that roughness and that craziness and quirkiness allows the the workman to shine through mm. the personality to shine through um whereas these roman columns these fluted columns all of these slaves who did all this work you know, you're not seeing their uniqueness coming out because they are told, do this as perfect as humanly possible to my design. Mm -hmm. So that was part of what Ruskin was trying to draw out, um, the difference between uh, enslaving work that's just focused on precision and yeah. simplifying so that anyone can do it uh, and this, this free, in the sense of freedom, workmanship yeah. uh, that, that allows expression. Yeah, and we've talked too about the fact that we feel like um, a lot of what Pi says about Ruskin, he's more responding to Ruskin's Victorian hyperbole. Sure. You know, when I think you, so. When you yeah. say something, you you would just say it in such a huge way, yep. uh, which Ruskin did. He didn't really make small statements. Yeah, I think that's, that's one thing <laughs> I think um, a lot of people have a hard time reading Victorian literature because mm. they think, all of this stuff is so unqualified right. and so absurd, and they're making all these overstatements. But it's so absolute, yeah. It's so absolute. But I think they're not understanding the genre or the way that, that these people were speaking. They weren't intending it to be a technical, right. exactly precise, you know, sort of scientific like all way of explaining all yeah. that kind of thing. So what they were doing is they're using um, language in a way that's evocative. Like poetry, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, is not literalistic, right? Um, and so this Victorian hyperbole, I, I, I read Ruskin that way, not in an absolutist technical sense. But if you look at Ruskin as making these, um, these sweeping statements that are um, pr provoking uh, action and uh, making you think about things, you know, like he was talking about, look around your fine parlor. Yeah. And you're so proud of how precise everything is, but don't you know that this comes at the cost of enslaving and unhumanizing other people, you know? Yeah. Now, of course, that's an absolute statement, but I don't think anyone would say he believed every single parlor in London right. looked that way. Right. He's just trying to, he's, he's using strong hyperbole as a literary effect. So... Yeah, and, and I think there's value in that. Like, we've talked before about how um, people who make big changes in their day and age don't 
don't do it by making small statements or infinite qualifications yeah or be like oh well no actually what i meant was in these these instances in this circumstance and oh this is true a lot of the time yeah and what do you have left at the end of that yeah you have like nothing to say the death of a thousand qualifications yeah exactly so um so pi's uh criticisms of ruskin were you know in regards to those sweeping statements the broad brush right um one of the things that he questioned too was um, Ruskin's insistence that a worker who was working to the design of someone else uh, could not enjoy that work. Like that is that is a dehumanizing kind of work. You have to be the designer. You have to, yes. There has to be a creative element to the execution, right? Like if if you are working to the perfect ideal of someone else then your your freedom of expression is removed from that creative process mm-hmm. and so pi questioned that yeah and he he you know has some good things to say about that and maybe you know is acting as a qualifier for ruskin in some ways uh but it's it's a useful thing um to look at pi's response to ruskin in that regard and then um just Pi talked a bit about how Ruskin's thoughts became the arts and crafts philosophy. Mm-hmm. And he had some critique of that as well, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's basically just, he's just seeing, um, I think he said, you know, what Ruskin, I don't know the exact wording, but what Ruskin got wrong, uh, Morris took to a whole nother level. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he didn't have anything great to say about um the arts and crafts movement um and i think he said he was critiquing ruskin's just broad brush approach because yeah. it pi pi saw the arts and crafts movement as as a, a failure like it yeah. it had an ideal and then it fell and he he was looking at the original ideals behind it as possibly the source of that failure um or just the way they those ideals evolved became the source of the failure of the arts and crafts movement so the the thing about it that i think is interesting is that um i think pe- some people might think pi and ruskin then are arch enemies and have nothing in common um but they're not totally at odds right um in fact this whole uh in um the nature and art of workmanship he has this whole chapter critiquing ruskin but he ends the chapter by saying this I think he, Ruskin, propagated three important ideas. Uh, So I'm summarizing here. Before Japanese aesthetics were known in the West, this wabi-sabi type stuff, he said he saw that free and rough workmanship has an aesthetic quality which is unique. Hmm. So that there's something special and unique about so-called rough work. Two, he also saw that, uh, that... in manufacture that there are qualities that are outside of design so that there's this surface texture there's something that comes through that no architect can put in there right there's something to the work itself that contributes to the aesthetics not just the blueprints and then last um he described and understood the quality in things that pi calls diversity um and so there's this diversity of of workmanship that there are rough tool marks and and all that and both pi and um and ruskin saw beauty and expression of humanity through those things 
And that in particular, I mean, mm-hmm. if you've been around here for a while, you know yeah. that's the thing that we really latch on to. Yeah. Um, so, so Pi very much appreciated those particular insights. Um, and I think, you know, things like with the, um, the question of being the designer, it's kind of ironic for us to latch on to some of what Ruskin says here because Ruskin's saying if you're working to a design that you didn't come up with, you're not going to be able to have joy in it. Mm. Well, I flatly disagree with that. Yeah. Because I don't really <clears throat> like designing furniture out of thin air. Um, I like taking, uh, I like basically, I like reproducing work that has been done before because for me, I find joy in walking in someone else's shoes and trying to see what they saw and, and to live right. that out. So, you know, I don't think it's, for me, it's not that, um, I think Ruskin had good things to say, but I think Pi is right to qualify some of that. Right. And I will say that probably it's true of you, it's true of me, everything I have made to a, like a, a design ideal or like in the model of some other object, I've changed I've Mm -hmm. added something else. I have never made, tried to make an exact reproduction of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, even if you wanted to, you couldn't. (laughs) Um, There's always something different. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is that as well, that, you know, you are free to change the design a little bit if you want to. Uh, Someone who is not free to change the design a little might be a little bit more, uh, you know, the the cog in the machine sort of um, place in that whole production thing. Um, But so, yeah, then we have, uh, this is, this is funny here. The uh, uh, divided labor in which you don't see the whole picture. Yeah. And that, that is a a difficult place to be. Um, Again, when we were talking about the assembly line, uh, the idea that, you know the parts come in one end and you have your part you're you're putting doors on the fire truck you're charlie chaplin yeah that's right (laughs) yeah and then the fire truck goes out the door and you you're not sharing in the completion of that object you're just doing the one thing you know it's the uh you know the whole story of henry ford and the assembly line is a fascinating story which we won't get into deeply but no but look it up yeah read about the history of ford yeah it's quite interesting yeah and there are definitely different perspectives that can be had on that whole Mm -hmm. thing like oh revolutionizing and worker pay and all that yeah or the other perspective read matt crawford on that yeah uh shop classes soulcraft he talks about ford and yeah good uh so and right, like the departmentalizing production where you say, oh, we'll do this part, but then the paint department will fix this, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, so Mike worked at a boat shop doing varnish work in a past life. Yeah. And I was the finisher at a custom guitar shop in Nashville for a little while. And so we both were paint department. Right. Yeah. We were the ones who had to fix everything. Oh, man. They always say oh, that's okay. They'll fix it in paint. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. Come on, guys. And so it was interesting being the last step in the whole process because we were able to see all of the people who were doing their work unaware of the other person's step, you know? So they're right. just carrying on with that. 
and uh, they're saying, I don't know, we'll see what happens in the, in the next run, and they're not not connected to it. And we saw that firsthand. Yeah. So, hey, Grace is here. Hey. Hey, say hi on the podcast. Oh, hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're just wrapping up. Yeah, almost done. Um, but uh, so this is a constant problem with uh, of, with groups of people working together that when you only have one task, you're not able to to share in that big picture that's so important. I mean, for me, if if I were only doing one part of these box sets, I would not feel the same sense of enjoyment and satisfaction as opposed to us doing, uh, we're taking each task and focusing on it and doing 40 rabbits in a row. Right. But then I'm going on to dovetails. And yeah. then I'm going on so to you assembly. Get to do that. And then I'm doing, we're all- And we will all wrap each magazine <laughs> and put <laughs> exactly. it in and box them up yeah you know probably a maybe a box full of wood shavings that they're gonna arrive in yeah so So for me in my own experience that's just super important variety is really important um and i think it's so it's also there's like a sweet spot so you have this i typically make one of something and when you do that you you bumble your way through the first time and then that's it so you never get in the groove. You're never right. able to feel that satisfaction of, yeah, I really got this step. But also, if I spent all day doing rabbits, day after day after day, it'd get really boring. So there is some sweet spot there for me. And, you know, if I can, you know, maybe it's two hours of a given task and you really get in the groove and it just becomes quite satisfying because you can say, man, I'm just nailing it. I can get it. I understand this process. And once you've kind of been riding that peak, it's maybe time it'd be healthy to kind of move on to another step. Yeah. So that's for me what I'm trying to look for is that sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just the the benefit of learning from both Pi and Ruskin and getting their their points of view and and kind of combining that into a, a, a bigger picture of what it means to work creatively and mm-hmm. freely, you know, the idea of free workmanship. Yep. Um, unguided, unregulated. Yeah, for joy, for yeah. enjoying it yeah. and, and the satisfaction of working with your hands. Yeah. So, Well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. Uh, if you haven't already, you can subscribe uh, at all those places that you can get your podcasts. Um, and if you are on our blog, you should leave a comment below. Uh, we'd love to interact about this. Um, or if you have questions or anything or insights about Ruskin Mm -hmm. that that we don't have, uh, you can leave them below. We'd love to hear from you. All right. See you next time. Mm